Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello out there to all you uh, Dodger and baseball loving folks. This is a uh, this is well, you know what? I'll, I'll go with this. The converted Mets fan, Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Rising Out. Oh wait, this isn't the Rising Out report. This is the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. But we've had some Mets people on the past couple weeks, and uh, uh, we got a, a Bay Ridge aficionado and uh, the Brooklyn Trolley blogger on the podcast this week, and that's Mike LeColant. Mike, thanks for joining me. No, thank you for having me. Obviously, I'm all over the place uh, with this early part of the podcast. I don't know which podcast I'm on. It's, there you uh, go. We're, we're merging everything, and, and ironically, you know, we're, we're here to talk about Brooklyn, uh, but I am currently, uh, for all you folks out there, all you listeners out there, I'm currently staring at the George Washington Bridge up at 181st Street and Riverside Drive, and it's... Uh, you know, Mike, it's quite the sight. It, it really is. It's a beautiful part of Manhattan. In the early 70s, my godparents lived up there, so I spent a ton of time up there, and, and it's an underappreciated part of Manhattan. I mean, the, the Palisades are, are really, really pretty. Uh, you know, Jersey gets a bad rap from, from us New Yorkers, let's be honest. Uh, it, it's, it's, I, I don't give it uh, credit enough. But I'm going to start walking away from here, and, and we're going we're gonna to head over uh, ironically, to the uh, the polo grounds and see if we can make it over there during the uh, during the podcast. But uh, but let's you know while we're walking through Upper Manhattan, Mike, let's uh, let's talk some Brooklyn. Uh, well, well let, let's start with the, your Brooklyn roots. Uh, give us some give us some uh, background on your history. Well, ironically enough, you're in the place of my genesis here in New York City. I was born in Mount Sinai Hospital, and at the time, my parents lived in, within that neighborhood, actually. And uh, the first three years or so, I say we spent there. And then I went out of country for a while, uh, for two years, as a matter of fact. I went down to Argentina. My grandmother was not well. And what we thought was going to turn out to be a couple of weeks turned out, for me, turned out to be a couple of years. And uh, we settled back in Brooklyn when it was time for me to uh, start kindergarten. And that's when my days in Brooklyn began. Oh, that's that's fantastic. So... When it comes to the Dodgers and all the uh, legacy of baseball in Brooklyn, well, what, what's, who's the first person that jumps to your mind uh, when you, in regards to your own family history? Uh, two people, actually, and that would be my aunt and uncle uh, on my mother's side. Uh, they taught me a great majority of, uh, of baseball. They taught me how to be passionate about it when I was a child. Uh, my father was a – I'm a first – generation American, so my father comes from a, a, a soccer background, mm. and uh, when he came here, he became a Yankee fan, and uh, I was born a Met fan, proud to say, through my mother's side. Uh, she was a Met fan, and uh, her sister and uh, her husband, my aunt and uncle, they were also Met fans, and uh, my uncle played semi-pro ball in the Caribbean, mm. and while my aunt, she was a uh, former Dodger fan and became a Met fan. And it's through her that I got my initial knowledge and education from the, uh, of the Dodgers and actually my introduction to the Mets. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, but, but in that, you've also explored a lot of uh, uh, the history of, of baseball in Brooklyn, and you're really, uh, really into some of that, the, uh, the 1800s stuff. You, you know, I, I like to say, and the quote's probably not original. I'm sure I read it in one of these books that I've read over the years, that before there was Cooperstown, there was Brooklyn. Uh, this is the place where Brooklyn, where baseball history began. This is the place where it, it springboarded from and spread throughout the country after the Civil War. This is where uh, 
your first superstar, you know, entered the picture. And this is where your first dynasty played their games. And, and it's really from here that the game went from being amateur to professional. And, and then after four or five years of what they call the National Association of Baseball Players, which was the first professional circuit, the National League was born in 1876 with uh, Brooklyn being one of those charter members. But there was tons of teams. And sure, the first game that you know we traditionally like to call that was in Hoboken between uh, the New York Knickerbockers and a challenge, uh, sure, that was the first game that we like to document as the first ever being played, but it was really here in Brooklyn that everything took off. And these were, this is where the first dominant teams uh, established and, and, like I said, spread throughout the land. And when there was about, oh, like, only 25 teams in Manhattan, there were about, uh, you know, like 80 in Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, and, and they all started out back in those, you know, 1840s and 1850s as social clubs. So it was a, a group of men who knew each other. They came to form these social clubs, and they challenged each other in, in baseball competitions. Once things started taking off, uh, let's call it, you know, 1850. Let's just making a flat 1850. By then, they were challenging each other, and uh, uh, the game was still amateurish. But uh, slowly but surely, you know, money started entering the picture, and ultimately uh, the Cincinnati Red Stockings started playing, paying their players openly, and by 1871, the amateur game was done, and the professional game had started. Have you ever read a book by John Thorne titled Baseball in the Garden of Eden? I have not, sorry to say, and it sounds like a fascinating read. Oh, it certainly is, and John Thorne's been on the podcast. He actually uh, is from uh, the upstate area near my, my camp and actually went to my camp, uh, ironically, and I reached out to him a long time ago about a paper I was doing on baseball in the Civil War, and he was uh, extremely gracious and has always been. But he wrote this uh, great book, and, and what's interesting about the whole uh, professional aspect of it is that in his research, and obviously it's, it's you know, it, it, that, that's, his, that's his line of work, uh, but it's obviously a hard thing to, to track down, and, and he does it better than anybody. But, you know, it, we all like to put some beginnings on things in, in, in terms of, like, when, when the first baseball game was, when the first, uh, you know, when baseball was born, um, when the first player was paid. But, you know, it was kind of under the table before that whole team was was paid. You know, there were players certainly getting paid prior to that 1969 Cincinnati Red Stars. Oh, yeah, no doubt. That, that's why ultimately they, you know, went open with their shenanigans. Like, but like you said, sure, there was uh, secret deals and money being passed under the table for, for certain. Uh, but like I said, Cincinnati just said, you know, enough with that. We're open about it, and ultimately right. everything went pro. Right, exactly, exactly. We talked also about, and I want to see uh, what kind of uh, uh, history that you, you've uh, caught up with it, uh, on the, the first, uh, technically maybe the first World Series between the uh, New York Giants and the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers in 1889. The 1889, you call me by surprise on that one, but in 1889, I can uh, look that up rather quickly here. But uh, ooh, you caught me off guard with that one. But in the meantime, what I will say is referring to those players back in the Civil War era and, 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 and going back to what I mentioned before as Brooklyn being, you know, the place to visit 
and, and appreciate history uh, is right here in Brooklyn, and it's called Greenwood Cemetery. And there, a, a great majority of the players who played in those 1850s and 1860s, they're buried there. They all wanted to be there together. And uh, there's a couple of interesting uh, uh, plots, and I, I don't mean to make this a, a grim conversation by, you know, <laughs> By all, by all stretches of imagination, because it's a cemetery. But nevertheless, there's a couple of uh, monuments there, and one of them uh, would be uh, Mr. Chadwick, Henry Chadwick, who was the first real documenter of baseball history, and he's the one who pretty much invented the the box score and and things of that nature, and, and a ledger, and a system of recording games and statistics. He was baseball's first statistician, and he has a beautiful monument in the uh, in the cemetery. Uh, it's in the form of a baseball diamond with a home plate and three bases, and in the middle where the pitcher's mound would be, would be, uh, I would say, a, uh, a six-foot-high obelisk, and on each of the four panels, uh, is decorated in uh, era, era type equipment like the catcher's masks and and, and baseball and, and crossing bat fixtures on it, and uh, it, it, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating headstone. And there's another one, a, a white marble headstone, and there lies a gentleman from the New York Knickerbockers, and his stone simply says, "The Father of Baseball." Oh, that's great. Well, you know, obviously you and I weren't able to, uh, to prep. It was a crazy week. To, we weren't able to prep like we could, but I appreciate you going with the flow. And, and I have to go. I haven't been into Greenwood Cemetery, uh, and i got to go check out Henry Chadwick's uh, plot. And, and, of course, probably probably the most famous in Brooklyn history, uh, Brooklyn baseball history buried there is Charlie Evans. Uh, that is correct. He's buried there as well. And he actually sits on the uh, highest point in Brooklyn. Uh, it, it's a very simple stone, a, a very prominent granite stone, but simply says Ebbets. And it's, uh, like I said, the, the view from there overlooking the harbor in Manhattan, uh, pretty spectacular. So that that is the highest point in Brooklyn, kind of like I'm I'm in the highest point in Manhattan. That is correct, my friend. Close to it. That is correct, my friend. I've, I've certainly, I've biked Brooklyn plenty, plenty of uh, times, and I haven't gotten to everywhere, but I think I once did bike the perimeter of the Greenwood Cemetery, and my God, that thing is huge. I mean, it's basically, uh, you know, a park for dead people, basically. Uh, it in, is. In size, uh, in size compared to Prospect Park. Uh, I, I think uh, they're almost the same size. Uh, they pretty they they cover a lot a lot of acreage. Uh, you can spend a lot of time in there, and it is, the views are spectacular. I, I I have to say, for cemetery, I mean it's a national landmark, but going in there is just it's spectacular. Uh, one gentleman has a pyramid uh, <laughs> as a uh, as his uh, as his place of rest. Fascinating place. What are what are some of your favorite places other than Greenwood Cemetery? Uh, in Brooklyn, what are some of the, your favorite places to to go and and uh, you know take take in some of the, uh, the the history that that is Brooklyn and and underrated really in terms of in terms of how important it is to this country. Well, you know, the first place you'd have to go is Brooklyn Heights, and that is officially the first suburb of America, a suburb of New York City, obviously across the river in Manhattan. But that was the first place that somebody 
uh, spread from the urban environment and look for uh, a less cluttered uh, area to live. And Brooklyn Heights would be that. And uh, there's a lot of Civil War era buildings and pre-Civil War era buildings over there. And there's uh, a couple of interesting places over there to visit. One would be on Court Street, right across from uh, Brooklyn Borough Hall. And that would be the site where the Brooklyn Dodgers formerly had their business offices and where Jackie Robinson signed his contract. Uh, the, the old building that used to be there is no longer there. It's there. Uh, it's, it's the bank now with, with a newer building that replaced the old fixed uh, structure. Uh, but there's a plaque right outside the bank uh, for all to see, and uh, it commemorates the signing uh, when the Dodgers signed Jackie Robinson, and mm-hmm. uh, that's one historical place. And also on Clinton Street in Livingston, uh, there's a corner house there, and uh, that used to be the clubhouse to a team called the uh, Jolly Young Bachelors and, uh, from 1859. And again, there's a plaque on the outside of the residence. It's a private residence. And uh, the people who live there, they're quite used to people coming up to them and asking them to take, their picture, take the picture of the plaque and you know, go around their house uh, rather strangely. So uh, that's another interesting place of baseball history over there. Uh, I would also note that... Uh, uh, on Carroll Street, there's a park there uh, that in the 1850s, again, uh, the old vintage baseball games used to be played, in, as well as in Red Hook. And what is a soccer field now on Bay Street, uh, 1850s and 60s era baseball would be played there also. So all up and down the, I would call it the western coast or shoreline of Brooklyn, uh, all the way up from Brooklyn Heights down to Red Hook is, is just right with spots that uh, baseball was played back in the 19th century. And I would say that this city does a horrible job of marking these sites and, and dedicating them to baseball history and New York City history as a whole. And you got to say that that's because Brooklyn should be, let's face it, it should be its own city, and it's not. It's part of the conglomerate that is the, the majestic New York City. It's... It, uh, almost overwhelming how big the city is compared to everything else uh, yeah, in well, the urban sprawl. But it, um, it's got 2.5 million people, if not more, maybe 2.6 uh, or 7 at this point. Uh, it's the most populous borough. Uh, we were our own city up all the way up until, what, 1898 when Manhattan incorporated the mistake, us? The mistake of 98. <laughs> yeah, the mistake of 98. You know, I mean, this this borough really does not need anything from the city to survive. It's got its own tax base. It's got everything going for it. So uh, this place can very well be its own city again very easily. And I would, you know what, I would welcome the day. I, I, yeah, I, I think there's a contingent who, who uh, kind of like the people who want to become their, uh, the 51st state of, uh, which, which, uh, out in Long Island. Um, but I just, I just think that at this point uh, it just would never happen. I oh, no, could absolutely not. You know, um, you mentioned Red Hook, and uh, I was wondering, did you, did you get down there to see some of those, uh, those old trolleys before they, they took them to the museum? They took them, yeah, apparently, I, they, I, I think it's a Syracuse museum? Uh, they initially took them to a place in Connecticut, I believe. And right, then, okay, okay. you know, the, the whole thing, I believe, turned into a scam. The guys, uh, the people who... Uh, eventually took hold of the trolleys, had no real intention of restoring them. It looks like they just wanted to cash in on the scrap metal. 
and I think that's what's ultimately going to happen to those unfortunate cars. Well, I actually, I, I think I read uh, there was a press release that said that they were being taken to a museum. Uh, that it, and that, that I think I've read in within the last two weeks. Well, I, I hope that's the case. Yeah, maybe something different. Interesting about San Francisco, uh, to tie the last three weeks of podcasts all together, uh, as I go all over to the polo grounds um, after after doing uh, AT&T Park um, San Francisco, but uh, they they have um, uh, you know they have several different kinds of transit lines, and one of them is just the trolley line. Uh, you know, they have the cable cars. They have uh, uh, a train trolley thing that kind of goes underground. That's only two cars. Uh, but they have uh, trolleys that go around from every city. Not every city, but the cities all across the country, retro trolleys that they use as, as cars to transport people. It's, you know, they got Louisville, Birmingham, uh, Cleveland, just ran- random trolley cars from the, from the 1950s. And it would be cool if they got a Brooklyn one in there. Yeah, it sure would. Uh, I, I would. I would love to see the day that happens. Uh, unfortunately, this guy's plan in Red Hook fell apart. He wanted to run a trolley from uh, the the waterfront down uh, in Red Hook all the way to Atlantic Avenue up Columbia Street. And, uh, you know, that would have been a fine connection because Red Hook is uh, is isolated. They have, real no, they have no mass transit to speak of other than two or three bus lines that go through there. They have no train access unless they cross uh, a very frenetic, uh, Hamilton Avenue, and get on over to Smith Street Station. So, uh, you know, a trolley would have definitely improved the quality of their lives. As the, far track as the, is, of, the track is still there, right? Uh, a lot of the tracks are still underground. You know, it was only recently that uh, the city got around to uh, digging up the tracks that lay underneath McDonald Avenue. Hmm. Uh, but uh, in most cases, like I live in Bensonhurst. I'm sorry to correct you a little bit. I'm not from Bay Ridge. Oh, my God, my that's, God, man. That's, that's cool. That, that, but that like, is, you know, oh, well. But Jeez. 86th Street over here, the tracks are still there. And, you know, in the wintertime or even now in, in, in uh, I should have said the, the summertime, but even now in the wintertime with all the expansion and contraction, you know, uh, most in most a lot of places right now, the, the tracks are exposed and uh, they protrude from the ground because all the, uh, all the, uh, the uh, <laughs> I can't even think of the word the road fill uh, the, uh, the the pavement let's just say the pavement you know it's right. pink and whatnot in, in, in the summertime and the, and the tracks become exposed uh, it's real neat you know it was, a, it was a great piece of real estate it's a great time capsule the the uh, Bush Industries what they used to call Bush Industries over on Third Avenue uh, by the Gowanus Highway. And the waterfront over there, the old factories. You go over there, and all the streets are still cobblestone. All the tracks are still in place, and uh, you, you're really looking at, you know, 80, 90, and 100 years ago how they used to do things. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the shipping slips right there, and the trains carried it to the factories. And what, what a tremendous place that could have been uh, back in the day. But uh, if you really want to take pictures and isolate, you know, a moment in time, you go there and you take pictures of the streets the cobblestones and the tracks, and, and it's gorgeous. You'd never know where those pictures came from other than 100 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Well, well you know, it's, it's great uh, conversation about Pokemon, but I do apologize not only to you but to the listeners for for uh, getting that wrong and not doing doing uh, my homework or marking that down. My my apologies. No, that's uh, so cool, tell, tell me Tell me about Benson Hurst, then. Bensonhurst, you know what? It's funny because I, I lived in various parts of Brooklyn once we did actually settle here. And uh, I joined the military during the Cold War. I was in from 85 to 90. 
And prior to that, I lived in what they called New Brooklyn, you know, in the Flatland section of Brooklyn. Uh, the section of Brooklyn that isn't as old as downtown and Williamsburg and all those sections, like Greenpoint and whatnot. Uh, it was more or less the place that was uh, being developed in the 60s and, uh, you know, early 70s. And it flourished and continued to, uh, construction continued through those neighborhoods uh, ever since. So uh, I lived over there, and then I joined the military. And prior to me getting out, I just happened to know a buddy who knew a, a super, and uh, I secured an apartment here in Bensonhurst in 1990, and I've been on this side of Brooklyn ever since. Yeah, and and you you know you're not about to leave. You're not about to think about going to any borough. No, I'm not. You know what? I, I've had my opportunities. I've looked into them. I, I almost moved to Florida. Uh, I looked into moving upstate to like uh, Putnam County. And uh, when push came to shove, I always wound up staying in Brooklyn. You know what? At heart, I'm a I'm an urbanite. Uh, but more specifically, I'm a Brooklynite. I, I still <laughs> love this place. I have a passion for it, and I have uh, no intention to leaving anytime soon. This place offers me everything at my fingertips, and uh, it's just still too convenient for me. Uh, you know, the trade-offs of moving outside of the city uh, don't interest me. You know, you, you might pay less outside the city, but, you know, ultimately you're going to wind up paying uh, the difference in travel or this, that, or the other. So, you know, the convenience is still terribly uh, convenient. Everything is just too convenient to me. And like I said, I just have a passion for this place. I love the history of this place. And I watched, you know, Brooklyn really, really deteriorate throughout the 70s and the early 80s. And for a long time, you know, there was no new construction. There was no new projects. Uh, all there was was deterioration and things shutting down. And, you know, uh, just an overall malaise that took over, took over the borough. And then uh, by the time I got back, I would say by the mid-'90s, uh, things started to turn around. And certainly by 2000, you know, construction was uh, springing up in many different places. And, and there's a whole new complexion to the borough today uh, in many pockets of it. Some pockets have stayed uh, historically traditional. Uh, some have radically changed. My neighborhood is under radical change. Uh, many neighborhoods are under radical change. Spike Lee recently uh, had a rant. I believe he was in uh, Pace, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I could be wrong about that. But at one college downtown, he uh, was talking in regards to Black History Month, and he wanted to get into a range how gentrification is taking over Fort, Fort Greene and uh, those neighborhoods and whatnot. You know, uh, I, I think that was ignorant of him to say because uh, change has been uh, in perpetual motion since the day I got here, and and all neighborhoods in Brooklyn change over time. Right. Uh, I, I, I mean, you know, uh, right, exactly. Demographics change, and, and at at one point, I mean, what you know, uh, Brooklyn didn't have as many African Americans as it has now, and, and then it did have as many African Americans because of the big migration from the the Caribbeans and in the South. Uh, and uh, it's just it's just the way it the way everything works. It, I mean, a lot of different factors certainly uh, play into that. Um, I think a lot of real estate speculation and and the migration to the suburbs of a lot of white people uh, obviously played into that. But and, and, and going with that, in fact, uh, and what you were talking about with the deterioration of Brooklyn, um, you know, it's kind of a what came first, the chicken or the egg uh, question, but. 
do you think, obviously it's not directly Walter O'Malley's fault, but how much do you think the Dodgers leaving Brooklyn really, uh, you know, revved that process up? Repeat the question again. I think I might have lost you. Walter, again, repeat that. Well, well with, with, with Walter O'Malley getting out of Brooklyn, do you think that, that um, you know, he saw he, he was ahead of the curve in terms of what was going on with Brooklyn and, and he wanted to get out, but do you think that he, he sped up the process of deterioration in Brooklyn because of the way it was so devastating when the Dodgers left? Uh. Well, at the time that he moved, yeah, I would say he was at the leading edge of the deterioration because the closing of the Brooklyn Navy Yard is really – well, you you have to go back to Prohibition. Uh, Brooklyn uh, was a, a massive brewery. You know, northern Brooklyn, uh, Bushwick, and, and even Bed-Stuy and those northern neighborhoods were rich in breweries. Prohibition ruined – that industry here and ruined a lot of uh, a lot of lives. I, I, you know, to put it very bluntly. Yeah. Then the Dodgers left, and he didn't necessarily have to leave, but the deal that Los Angeles offered him was just it was just too good to pass up. It really was. Uh, he would have been. He, he. I don't know if he would have been better off here if he if he would have gotten what he wanted, but. Walter O'Malley did propose uh, the site where current Barclay Center sits, and he did propose a dome over it and things of that nature, and it would have been at the site of the Long Island Railroad Station, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But him leaving, you know, economically, uh, I can't say that that was a, 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 a dire situation like uh, other other developments that took hold in Brooklyn, but uh, he ripped uh, the citizenry's heart out. Right. Uh, then, I mean, if anything, by them leaving, they had more money in their pockets because they weren't spending them on Dodger games. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, what he did was rip out our hearts and, you know, put everyone in a really piss-poor mood, which you know, added and was combined with everything else that was negatively affecting the borough. Prohibition really killed the borough. And then the closing of the Navy Yard. The Brooklyn Navy Yard was Brooklyn's largest employer. And you're talking about the whole, you know, spectrum of employees, from welders to secretaries, shipbuilders, you name it, they worked at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And again, that was the borough's largest employer. And when uh, the Department of Defense decommissioned it and uh, it fell out of its primary usage, uh, that was the beginning of uh, a really, really bad period. And that was inaugurated in the 60s, lasted throughout the 70s. Uh, the 80s was, uh, I would say, a... a uh, a holding point. Once the 80s rolled around, uh, things, the late 80s, things started to stabilize, and then by the 90s, mid-90s, things started to improve. So, uh, you know, things take time. I, as a 47-year-old now, I, I know now things take time. Things will eventually change, but they take time. They don't take, it's not three, five, seven, ten years. Things take 20, 30, 40 years in order to change. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. Well, let's let's go uh, back to some baseball and uh, talking about you know where you got your your roots uh, for baseball and and uh, who was the the National League fan in your family. What when was the first time? What was the first time that you can peg on learning about that the Giants and the Dodgers existed in this place? What was the first time that you you can remember being like, oh, oh, they, that that existed? Well, again, I would I would. Again, I would have to point to my aunt, uh, who was a former Dodger fan, and she was the one uh, who, again, uh, gave me my passion for the Mets, and she taught me about the Giants, and she taught me about the Dodgers and how they left and how the Mets picked up where they left off. Left off. And uh, it was through her that I really got my, uh, my passion for baseball uh, and my uncle and uh, my mother, because uh, she was a Mets fan growing up. And back in Puerto Rico... She went to school with Felix Mion, and she knows several other individuals, like uh, the Edgar Martinez's father and their family, and Lou Pinella, uh, and, and again, those relationships were struck back in Puerto Rico. So uh, I've, my aunt has far more relationships. I have two cousins in Major League Baseball. You know it now, I guess I'm putting it out there. But I have two cousins who played Major League Baseball. They both retired now. And, uh, yeah, I guess through them I, I've benefited slightly, not terribly, because, you know, uh, I live here in New York, uh, separated from the great majority of the family with my aunt and uncle and cousin here in New York City. So whenever they came to town, yeah, I benefited with tickets and, and things of that nature. But uh, right. uh, I, so often when I go down to Puerto Rico or people come here to town, uh, through my aunt, I, I would, uh, I, I, I guess you would say I enjoyed uh, some of the benefits of, her relationships and the family's relationships. So when's the first time uh, that you saw the Ebbetsfield land, the building that is now there, and um, what was your reaction? Very, very young. Again, uh, we're talking about the mid-'70s because my aunt lived in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn, and I would be coming. At the time, I lived by uh, Holy, Holy Cross Cemetery, and that's another interesting story. But in order to get from point A to point B, we always took Bedford Avenue or we always took Rogers Avenue. And if not every two weeks, you know, even more often than that, I was driving by the old Ebbets Field site and clearly written on the side of the Brookes, Ebbets Field. You know, so since the early 70s, I knew about it and I I would ask Ebbets Field, what's that? And my father told me and I came to know what it was and, and what used to be there. So all that really started very early for me in the early 70s. Uh, when I was six and seven and eight years old, I, I came to know such things. Uh, another interesting story, like I said, I lived on a dead-end block up against Holy Cross Cemetery, uh, East 45th, in fact. Uh, it was a dead-end block, like I said, and in 1972, I was uh, six or somewhere around there. And uh, one day, uh, you know, everybody... Uh, started heading on up the block. And naturally, you know, the fact that it was a dead-end block, everything took place in the street because there's no such thing as cars coming down the street unless you actually live there. So sidewalk and street were the same real estate. So it was one day and everyone started heading up the block and naturally they took me and my mom was there and neighbors and people from across the street and to my left. Put it this way, everybody started streaming up the block. And I didn't know why, but I was brought along, and then a motorcade came down to Snyder Avenue. And people started to cry. The people were upset. People were silent. 
And I didn't really know what was going on. It was only after the fact that they told me that was Gil Hodges' uh, funeral procession. Oh, wow. And, uh, uh, again, uh, I started to learn about the Dodgers and Dodger history from a different segment of my life now, from the people on my block. As I started becoming a little older and more understanding of things when I became eight and nine and ten, but they explained to me what was going on that day, and they explained to me that they were putting Gil Hodges to rest, uh, really, literally, almost right behind us. And for many years, when I lived there, until we moved, uh, lo and behold, that's where or how close I was to Gil Hodges, and went and watching this funeral procession go down. Now, another story that I'd learned. Three years ago, I played softball with a with a with a gentleman, and his father, or he says, "Now this is just pure anecdotal. I don't expect anyone to believe me or or not believe me." But here it is: uh, his father was friends with Tom Seaver, and he told me the story that when they were actually putting Gil Hodges uh, to rest and lowering him down, or just prior to that, or in the process of that, just beyond the gate. Uh, there was uh, a few kids making a ruckus. And that at that moment, Tom Seaver turned around and yelled at them to cut out whatever it is they were doing or disperse. And that he was very upset by that, that, you know, the the, the process was being disturbed. Uh, a minor story, but a story nonetheless. Oh, yeah. And he shared that with me, uh, I would say, about three years ago. Well, uh, it, it's... Again, ironic that uh, while we're talking about uh, uh, Dodger history and National League Baseball history, that I have arrived to Coogan's Bluff. I'm at 160th and Paul Robinson Boulevard. I believe this is Coogan's Bluff. It might be one more down, maybe one more level down. But uh, you know, I'm looking at the I'm looking at the uh, the Polo Grounds buildings. All right, there you go. <laughs> I'll have to uh, I'll have to go down there and see all the plaques and. Uh, you were telling me about uh, that the 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 home plate plaque uh, right. that, that's supposed to be there. You, you said nobody's really ever you've never heard of anybody finding it. Well, no, no. Uh, the home plate at Ebbets Field that it's supposedly oh, in the parking lot. I've never seen it. Right. And it's for, and rumors continue to circulate that it exists. I've spoken with men and they said no, there's no such thing. Well, anyway, the room is continuing. But at the Polo Grounds Apartments, uh, there's a, a rather large plaque affixed just outside of one of the lobbies to the buildings and saying that this was uh, the former site of Home Plate, home of the New York Giants, and also home of the, uh, of the New York Mets, et cetera, et cetera. But it's there. It makes for a nice picture. Oh, it certainly does, and I'm going to have to go uh, take a look at it as long as I'm here. If you're uh, at Rucker Park, and you turn around and you start, and you face the buildings. Like I said earlier before the show, if you go in about 125 feet, maybe 200 feet in, the building to your left, that's where it is. And then just another 200 feet or so beyond that, on the other side of a parking lot, would bring you to the base of Putin's Bluff and the old staircase that our giant fans used to come well, down. Well, uh, you know, you're mentioning the staircase, and, and here, here I am. There you I'm go. At, I'm looking directly at them. It's still closed off. They're still working on it. Now uh, I haven't been there. I haven't been there in about six years. What changes have they made? Because when I was there, that was pre-work. Right. Yeah, well, they they've put. I mean, I don't know whether they've done this now, but I would I would assume that they've done this now. 
all the uh, the bottom of the I beams that are holding the the stairs up are now uh, in blocks of cement. Um, I think they've cleaned up the center the center of the stairs in between where it turns takes a a 90 degree angle right. Um, it says the John T. Brush stairway presented by the New York Giants. Uh, it is it is clear and uh, it, it looks like it's probably you know it's metal in in the cement. Um, I, I don't know whether that's the original one from uh, when they they made these stairs, but uh, it, they, these are definitely those stairs. And it, you know it's clear. It says the New York Giants right there. There's their legacy. Right. You know, nevertheless, whatever they're doing over there, I think is spectacular. And it took a private yeah. effort because the city's never going to get around to doing that. You know, and it's a shame. And I'm going to tell you that from experience because I'm friends with a certain person over there. And I've always petitioned her why, at Washington Park at 3rd Avenue and 3rd Street in, here in Brooklyn in the, mm-hmm. what we call, uh, what people are trying to call East Slope <laughs> or, or South <laughs> Slope, I should say. I'm sorry, South Slope, uh, you know, just further to the left of Park Slope. They're trying, but whatever. Nevertheless, that's what Washington Park is, where the Dodgers used to play before they built Ebbets Field. Right. Okay. Uh, it's a city park now, and uh, George Washington's headquarters are there back uh, in the Battle of Brooklyn of the Revolutionary War. But my point is that I've often spoken with this particular person about the city and why won't they put any, any signage or any identifying markers that the Dodgers used to play here. And the response I got was they're just not interested. They're more interested in the history of George Washington and, and taking that route than they are in, in, in celebrating that the Dodgers used to, at one time played there. And, and I find that, you know, astounding. I've mailed in numerous petitions and I filled out numerous applications uh, to the Landmark and Department of Parks and, and everywhere I thought that, you know, my petition would get attention. And I've gotten no response. I've made numerous phone calls. Uh, you know, as far as all the historical points in Brooklyn and baseball and, and trying to get identifying markers placed in there. And let me tell you, it's been a fruitless effort. Uh, I'm getting nowhere. Nobody's interested. Uh, the one friend I have who works for the Department of Parks, uh, he's, he, he reiterated it again. Uh, they're not interested. Either they're not interested or, you know, in order to get something like that to get done, is a near impossibility. He told me to give up. <laughs> it's a shame, well, but he told me to should. give up. I don't think you should, and I will certainly take up the charge with you. I've always wondered when I'm walking around there why there isn't anything more. Uh, there, there's some spectacular pictures of that I found of uh, of the Dodgers playing there back in the day, and, and you see the, the all the apartment buildings behind it, and it's just uh, – I, I I really love the idea of, of a neighborhood ballpark. I really love the idea of a ballpark just sitting in the middle of a neighborhood. And, and uh, I, I like the fact that one used to sit right in Park Slope. Who knows how it would have developed it had, had they decided to build this concrete and steel ballpark there. Um, it's, it's just fascinating to think uh, of the hypotheticals, of course. Um, but, you know, it is what it is now. And, and uh, I think, uh, you know, Bring it all back around to the Mets. I, I think that it's uh, there's there's a lot of controversy when it, when it comes to the building up of Willits Point over there. But for me, I, I think that uh, that that's going to be a good thing to make it. You know, because when when they moved from Shea Stadium to City Field, 
though, you know, we could, we could obviously get into uh, the differences, the, 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 the pros and the cons of it. Um, but I actually liked the fact that they were, that you could see the, the, uh, um, the, the, the car places, you know, all the, all the, uh, the parks places. Right. The chop uh, shops. Shop 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 shop. I liked that you could see it because I felt more connected to the urbanness of, 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 uh, of playing in Queens. And, you know, I, it, Chase Stadium was kind of on an island. It was kind of in the middle of a, a park in some ways. And so I liked that they were against the, the road again. They were against uh, 126th Street, which is obviously when you hear any number next to street, it always just, you know, you think of New York City. Um, sure. I, you know, for us. But, uh, but yeah, that, I, I know you have some quick opinions on that because we, we don't have too much time, but if you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Will's point. Uh, you know what? I softened on the whole idea. Originally, I wasn't particularly crazy about it. I thought it was a little contrived. I thought it was going to be uh, like an oasis that would ultimately fail. I didn't think it had much uh, promise of, of success down the road, but I'm softening on that. And I'd be a hypocrite. And or I realized I was being a hypocrite by being against it because I've always wondered, you know, how would be or having a park in an environment, say, like in Baltimore or or, or Boston or even right. the Yankees for that matter, where literally they're surrounded by the the, the neighborhood, where Safe Stadium and City Field aren't necessarily that connected to the adjoining neighborhoods. I mean, you still have to cross the bridge over the uh, the Grand Central in order to get over into the neighborhoods or, you know, you have to traverse a very long stretch before you get into College Point. So, yeah, Shea Stadium City City Field was literally an island unto itself. You know, there was nothing else to do other than go there, go in the parking lot or get off the train and go in the park. So uh, as far as game day experience, yeah, I'm sure sure it will be an improvement. People spend more time there, get there earlier, probably leave later, and all that good stuff raise revenue for the city and taxes, blah, 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 blah. But the real <laughs> test is going to be what happens in the off-season. You know, uh, yeah. what's going to be there in the off-season uh, to entice people enough to go there? You know, because you're literally uh, in a purely residential section of Queens. Uh, that's not a very uh, uh, high-end business-oriented neighborhood uh, like, per se, where the Citibank building is in Long Island City and things of that nature. That's, that's all I'm trying to get to in right. that respect. Uh, the adjoining neighborhoods of, of formerly Shea and, and City are, are purely residential. So maybe it has a chance, you know. Uh, people maybe, will look to, maybe people will look to spend their entertainment dollar there as opposed to having to go a little further away. So, yeah, I'm sure it has problems. Yeah, and that's interesting. We don't uh, obviously. I wish we had more time, and uh, I'd have to explore getting more time at another juncture. But uh, you know, it, it kind of goes into the way in the in the sixties. They, when it comes to building ballparks, they were playing to the the suburbs because of the car, um, and and so you know that was certainly a victim of of all of that. Like well, I, there I you really, go. I very much appreciate you coming on to the the show today and and talking uh, about a wide variety of stuff, not just Brooklyn, but. Uh, New York City history. Well, I had a blast. It was my pleasure. And once again, thank you very much for having me on. Of course, Mike. Everybody, if you, if you haven't seen his blog, uh, Brooklyn Trolley Blogger, uh, please make sure you check it out. Uh, and, Mike, we'll get into that, uh, that a little bit more. I know I wanted to get into the blog, uh, but we did not. Uh, my apologies. But, yeah, everybody, check out brooklyntrolleyblogger.blogspot.com and also 
you can see uh, Mike's writing about the Mets on risingapple.com, which we are uh, co-writers with. So, uh, again, thank you, Michael, and I appreciate it. And I appreciate all you listeners coming along for the, uh, the ride on really the first, first nice day in a very, very long time. I'm um, actually a little hot having walked around here. All right, everybody, that's our show. Have a great one. Take care. So, so long, everyone.